to the Two Year Bible, a custom designed two year Bible reading plan with a weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church. And I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey there. And so we are continuing, uh, as we have been now for a little bit, through the book of Numbers as well as the book of Acts at the same time. And we are picking up at another story of rebellion. Which- so I hope at this point you've realized that Numbers is more than just Numbers. Yeah. There's a lot of stories here, and a lot of rebellion. And mm-hmm. so uh, we get a specific crowd, at least this time, not identified as all of Israel, but um, there's Korah and these two other men, uh, and they have some accusations against Moses and Aaron, or at least uh, want position. Uh, there's something about uh, what Aaron does that they view as as privilege, and they want to be priests like that. And and, and just to clarify, uh, sort of the role of the Levites versus the priests versus the high priest. The the Levites are the tribe itself. And and um, all priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. And so there's there's a large collection of Levites whose role um, does involve the tabernacle, but they would have never gone into the tabernacle. Um, they would have helped with stuff on the outside. They would have helped um, with, with sort of the upkeep of particularly the sacrifices on the outside, uh, but they would have never gone into uh, the, the, the tabernacle itself. The priests are the ones who would be allowed into the tabernacle and the priests all come from Aaron's line. So um, any, any of the sons or, or grandsons and all of Aaron would, would be able to practice uh, the, the roles of the priests who have to go into the tabernacle itself. And then one, only one uh, through his lifetime uh, would be considered the high priest who was allowed once a year to go into that holy of holy place. So, um, so yeah, so there might be Levites who are, are, are wondering, Hey, why aren't, why aren't we priests too? Why does only Aaron get to do that? And so um, that, that seems to be some of the, some of the accusation, and we could Here. say that they're just looking for understanding, but I really think their heart behind it is selfish. They want access. They want to do the the special or important thing they see. And just how often do we try to find our own way to atone for or justify our sin rather than also wanting a mediator? Yeah. And, and I thought it was interesting, even as Aaron, like it has been costly for Aaron to be the priest and, and a role that mm-hmm. he didn't necessarily sign up for per se, but he has lost children to being uh, a priest. It's been costly for him. And yet Cora and the followers seem to, to look at this as sort of like a privilege. Um, and, and I think that's a, an interesting way to go. And and maybe the Cora and this company of, of other people think, um, oh, well, we want to make atonement for things and stuff like that. And it's losing God's provision for atonement, which God has laid out for them um, and, and them trusting in that. Yeah, it makes me think of the New Testament where it talks about how we all have roles to serve within the body of Christ. And I think that's an invitation or an encouragement to not resent the gifts that God has given you and the role that God has given you to play and think that one is more special than the other when all of us are working to serve the Lord. Yeah, definitely. But they're given also um, a uh, physical reminder of Aaron and Moses's roles um, with this budding staff that uh, Aaron's buds and the other 11 tribes staffs don't bud and um, it becomes a a permanent fixture in the tabernacle. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, It lives in the Ark of the Covenant as a reminder of the priesthood along with manna and the two tablets. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And so we get uh, the duties of the priests and Levites, which I just laid out for you, uh, the, the kind of reiterated of what they get to do as well as some of the benefits. Uh, so they don't get land, but they do get to eat sacrifices, payment for the firstborn. Um, Israel itself will tie to the Levites. The Levites themselves tie to Aaron and his family. Um, so there's a whole provision system set up for the priests. Yeah, as they're getting ready to move into the promised land, they're reminded again, this is how this works and this is how we operate. And even this idea that the priests are to guard the tabernacle and sanctuary so that there may never again be wrath on the people of Israel. They know what's expected of them. But with that whole um, Korah incident, there's also a lot of people that died. And so uh, this will be a recurring theme as we have walked through this book that there's there's moments where where a large collection of people die because of a plague or because of something. And, and so you got to imagine there's all these people that now have to deal with these dead bodies and, and whether it's burial or however they got rid of them, but it's sort of like, okay, like God almost designs a fast track cleansing method uh, for uh, all the people that are touching all these dead bodies where they burn a heifer, a red heifer, a specific heifer, put the put the dust in the water and sprinkle it on the people and they can be clean sort of fast tracked and so um yeah it, it's probably helpful moving forward if they're going to have other plagues uh for the people but anyways yeah it, it's a it's a peculiar story uh and then we get the death of miriam recorded uh, which is uh, always important uh, we don't only get so many specific people deaths mentioned um and miriam is is a it's important to the story enough that uh, the writer uh, likely Moses is including his sister in here. Yeah, uh, let's think back to what she's done. She was the sister who saved Moses's life by putting him in a basket. She took care of him. And then she became, as she grew, and as Israel was set free from Egypt, she was a prophetess, and she was an influential person in the community. Yep. Um, but the people are complaining and want some water, and God provides. Uh, God says, okay, uh, which is great. Uh, God's response isn't always that to some of their grumbling, but uh, here specifically, it's definitely um, um, provision. Uh, and he does it in a similar way he's done it before, which is Moses and a rock. But um, this one is different. Uh, he tells Moses to speak to the rock. Um, so Moses will have to look like a crazy person talking to a rock. Uh, but um, Moses decides he's not going to do that, and he strikes the rock. And he does it twice, nonetheless. And um, Before you jump there, I just yeah. want to say, I think it's really interesting that Israel comes and they're like, there's no figs and there's no pomegranates here. They're complaining about what they don't have. And yet that is the exact fruit that the spies brought from the land of Canaan that Israel refused to enter. So sometimes we accuse God of not giving us what we want or what we think we need, but it's our disobedience that has caused it to be withheld from us. Yeah. And, and, um, God has a pretty strong response to Moses here is because you did not believe me or uphold me as holy in the eyes of Israel. So uh, either because he didn't do exactly what God said, or maybe his use of we to sort of like take on the role of almost like um, the, the pagan magicians that, that would uh, conjure up uh, uh, magic tricks. And so um, it could be either there's, there's definitely multiple interpretations of exactly what Moses did wrong, but um, either way around it was, it was, uh, that not believing God and not upholding his name as holy in that process. Um, yeah. And, and his standard as leader and as teacher to Israel was much higher yeah. than the others. And so that's why his consequence was so severe. And Sarah and I were just talking about, it's, it's fascinating. Jesus picks up on like some of the most random stories in scripture to be like, yeah, that one's about me. Yeah. So like, <clears throat> I mean, Paul does this with the, with the water and the rock here, but um, to say oh, like Jesus is, 
that that rock that water comes out of for us. And so it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> I wouldn't have picked that story to make the connection to Jesus, but um, Paul Paul does that to to talk about mm-hmm. how God provides for us life and sustenance in our sort of wilderness death state. Yeah, and that's in the beginning uh-huh. of First Corinthians ten. If you want to check it out. Yep. Uh, and then we're going to get various groups refuse passage to the Israelites. Uh, the first one being Edom and, um, Israel seems to be okay with it. They're, they're not happy. I mean, they, they seem to try to haggle a bit, but, uh, they're willing to go around, uh, Edom. Uh, and I think there's a reason why they don't necessarily attack the Edomites, at least right away. There's, there's not much fighting with them because God told them to drive out the Canaanites and the Edomites are not. Canaanites, they're they're from Esau. They're 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 sort of distant relatives to the Israelites, and so um, uh, I think they're they're going to deal with the Canaanite crowd differently than they'll deal with some of these other crowds. But it is interesting seeing some of these people come back up, and we know the story of Jacob and Esau because we read it really recently, and now we see what's happened generations later, and that there is still a little bit of a tension, but yeah. they're not fighting. Yep, and uh, we have. We just saw the death of Miriam, then we see the death of Aaron, uh, and uh, this one feels a little bit like a punishment moment where God reminds him saying, hey, because because of your disobedience, you and Moses, uh, Aaron, I'm going to have to strip you of your priesthood, pass it on to your son, and you'll pass away here. But Aaron was probably pretty old by this point anyways. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and um, we get another group that's destroyed, uh, and uh, there's an important connection, I think, between chapters 21 and chapter 14. Uh, we get that the same name of the city. We actually hear in chapter 21 it was renamed to Horma, and then in chapter 14 we'd already heard it heard it called Horma. So um, I think chapter 14 was future pointing to chapter 21 mm. um, of of they. Israelites were disobedient and got destroyed uh, fighting in chapter 14 here, and now in chapter 21. Um, heading towards the promised land in the way that God wanted them to. Now they're seeing victory. Yeah. And you'll see this is a real turning point in the story. For At this point forward, victory is going to follow them until they reach Canaan. They're not going to really be defeated anymore. And then we get another kind of random story that Jesus certainly picks up on, Super random. Uh, which is um, the Israelites are, are complaining. Uh, God sort of uh, sends these snakes. And what's great is that they don't respond like, oh, this is unfair or God, why are you punishing us like this? It's they're a initial response as we have sinned. Like they recognize that whatever they were doing was not right and not okay. Um, and, and Jesus picks up on the story of, of uh, when he's talking to, to Nicodemus around uh, the raising of the serpent in, in, in the desert and the raising of the serpent, you had the symbol of the thing that was actually causing everyone to die. The symbol of death um, that goes back to the garden itself, but the symbol of death and, mm-hmm. um, and if only they would look upon this golden serpent raised up, that they would not experience death; they would experience life. And and Jesus is like, look, I'm I'm going to have to be raised up. And and the symbol of of death, at least at the time, in the in the cross and punishment and judgment that that the cross would have represented. Um, and Jesus is is pointing to that, going, look, I'm I'm going to be raised up. And those that look at what happens on that cross, like. Um, that that Jesus's work in that process, what what Jesus accomplishes on that cross, even though it looks like death and it looks like um, judgment and pain and all these sort of things, it is through that that healing will actually happen. And so that's why it's foolishness, uh, as Paul will speak of in the beginning of Corinthians as well, um, that that the cross is sort of this stumbling block uh, for many because because of that 
that tension around um, this symbol that seems so not healing and not good would be the symbol of life. Yeah, it's this idea of the curse. The snake on the pole was and represented the curse while Jesus lifted on the cross also took on the curse of sin for us. Yep. And so they look to this cursed serpent in the wilderness and we look to Christ who became a curse for us yep. in order to bring us healing from and the still, consequences of sin. And it's still pretty significant. Uh, I was at Mount Nebo this past year and on top of Mount Nebo, they have this large serpent um, structure with the uh, sort of th- this story uh, in, in a basic structure at the museum on top of Mount Nebo. Um, and then you move on to the song of the well. So we're going to hear some songs, uh, which is great. We're not going to hear them. I don't know how they go, but um, they have songs as part of their history and they seem symbolic. Yes, they might've come to a literal well, um, but it, it sort of feels like, Hey, we've traveled this long way and we finally get to drink as if like they're coming to this promised land. They've been in the desert for 40 years. They're coming to this well, this more permanent place uh, to, to stay and to drink. Mm-hmm. And then we get some Kings defeated and some songs about them. Yeah. Um, and this is the first land that Israel settled. Yep. And so this is the, this is a section that's sort of on the East of the Jordan. So uh, it's not formally within the promised land designations. And we're going to see Joshua be the one who enters the promised land through Jordan, but um, it will be a place where some of these tribes actually end up mm-hmm. settling in on. So um, yeah. Yeah. So we get Balak and Balaam and this story of a talky donkey, which uh, I, I can't not hear Eddie Murphy talk like the donkey, but uh, maybe you hear it differently. Um, but uh, it's it's such a peculiar story to me. And there's so many details and so many pieces of this. But um, yeah, Balak seems to have a problem with Israel and really just wants them out and is willing to basically go to this Babylonian divination expert, the sort of prophet to come and to tell Israel why uh, they're not going to be blessed and they're going to be cursed. Yeah. I mean, Balak is afraid of them. He's seen them wipe out all of these other people. So he's thinking, I'm next. I I need something to keep us safe and protect us or protect my power. And and Balaam's faith is curious uh, exactly what he believes. He seems to have some knowledge of Yahweh, at least the the use of the name of Yahweh here, and, and seems to also know that um, he, he probably is not gonna be able to curse these people. Um, and, and is not willing to just do what Balak tells him to do. But, um, but he, he gets told once to come, he doesn't want to go, gets told again, and eventually has a, has this vision where God says, no, you, you can go if they come, if they come and get you again. But then by the next morning, Balaam's packed up his bag. So, um, Balaam seems ready to go, whether he follows God's instructions there or not. Yeah. I mean, there's, I think there's money in it for him. There's wealth and it's, it's just hard to know his, his heart or his character behind this because right. we can't read the tone. But whatever he does, it's, it's not okay in the, in the story because God is sending this angel. And at first only the donkey could see it. Then eventually because of the donkey talking to him, Balaam can finally see it. And then Balaam sort of comes to his awareness that, that he did something wrong, but um, the angel eventually tells him, okay, just keep going. And so he goes. Yeah. (laughs) And Balaam tells Balak again, Hey, I can't curse Israel. Um, But uh, eventually they get to a mountaintop. They can see Israel. They set up seven sacrifices and, um, and Balaam pronounces like a positive pronouncement 
It's like, hey, uh, I can't curse who God hasn't cursed. And um, even their descendants, they're, they're so numerous. And oh, that I might die like them. It's like, oh, okay. Like, yeah, and we see his his oracle confirming God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 13. Yep. They are greater than the dust of the earth. Yeah. The promise of the patriarchs has been fulfilled. Yep. Uh, Balaam does it again. They move. They set up seven more. Once again, it's great. It's a positive uh, oracle. They do it again, set up seven more. Uh, and I mean, every time Balak just seems more angry and Balaam's like, I, I told you, like, I can't speak against them. I'm a prophet. I'm going to say what I'm going to say. Yeah. And then they get this final oracle, which is oh, super interesting. And there's some, there's some Christmas tie-ins and I'll just connect the dots really quickly. Um, if, if Balaam's from Persia or from Babylon, I mean, if he's a if he's a known prophet from this area, I mean, some of his writings, some of his teachings would have been passed on. And if he's if he has this uh, oracle here, this sort of a statement that I see him now, I, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall arrive from Israel, and shall crush the forehead of the Moab and Sheth and Edom, who's Herod's an Edomite. Uh, that's also interesting, but. Um, if that is written in their histories, if they know that, if that's part of um, a prophecy that they know, hey, one day there'll be this some a, a scepter, a king that will rise from from Jacob, and <clears throat> this idea of sort of a star rising um, carries with it. Uh, these people would have been heavy into astrology, and not only that, but like the Earth wobbles on a weird axis, and so every two thousand years you get a sort of shift in how the stars rise. And right around 3, 4 BC, there was a shift again in how the stars rise. And I wonder if those wise men who are from the East, who would have been probably Babylonian, um, know this story and know this prophecy because we never hear like why the wise men are following the star. Mm -hmm. And and I wonder if, if they have seen a star because they, that's what the wise men say. We have seen a star rise. And and I wonder if they are now responding here to this prophecy and and God sends Jesus at just the right time, knowing, knowing all this. Um, And, and I I don't know, I just find it so cool. Anyways. Yeah. And I mean, that's awesome. (laughs) And we know no matter what, that there is a messianic prophecy here coming from Balaam, which is awesome. There is a scepter that will rise from Jacob and that will Mm -hmm. be truly uh, fulfilled in Jesus. Yeah. So Baal worship at Peor, I think it's also important to kind of know the background of sort of Baal worship because that gets into why God deals so harshly with the Baal worshipers. Um, Baal worship and, and, um, Ishtar and some of the other uh, connected groups, these sort of um, often harvest and fertility type uh, gods. Um, there was a lot of really, I mean, sometimes you can read the, 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 the Old Testament and be like, there's some terrible things sometimes that it feels like happen even uh, amongst the Jewish people, but like child sacrifice and, and things like that were super common in Baal. There's a reason why God constantly tells the Israelites that child sacrifice is bad. Um, because it was it was much more common in this worship, and uh, they had statues that would have these fires inside the statues, and then like a hot plate on the outside, and they would place babies and children on those, and they would basically be cooked to death uh, in this process. And then um, sexuality, prostitution, all that was was absolutely interconnected with with all the worship. And so there there were so many ways that um, 
the practices of worship of the Baal crowd were pretty abhorrent to just about everyone, particularly to Yahweh, but which should be very, very abhorrent to us and if we were to ever see any of these things in practice and in, in, in actuality. And so the fact that these Israelites are sort of marrying some of these crowds and then adopting some of this worship, like that is that is not okay uh, at all. And later on, when the, when God sort of judges some of these Baal worshipers, like, you kind of go, okay, I get it a little bit more. Um, if, if this is what they would have practiced and this is what they are persuading people to, to start worshiping like. Yeah. I mean, it's a direct devaluing of human life uh, and especially of vulnerable populations when you think of children and women yep. or younger women. Yep. And I, I think that maybe Israel became a little arrogant or a little proud that they just thought that like they could do no wrong because they weren't prophesied against and uh, Balaam was afraid of them. And I think that's just a warning to us too. like, be careful of the slippery slope that comes with thinking we cannot fall or we cannot make mistakes. Just because God is for us doesn't mean that he will tolerate sin or not allow the consequences of evil behavior to come upon us. So let's not forget the grace and mercy from God alone, and that is given because of His grace. We should receive it humbly and reverently and not as an excuse to sin. Yep, absolutely. Uh, and we at least get a very direct response from uh, this this guy named Phineas who uh, responds. And I love how the um, Eugene Peterson, in the message describes the scene right before that, where he says just then while everyone was weeping in penitence at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So they're weeping over this whole worship of, of Baal and Israel, a man flaunting his behavior in front of Moses and the whole assembly paraded a Midianite woman into his family tent. And so um, I feel like that captures probably the picture of, of that, that Phineas ultimately responds to and drives a stake through their groins. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty intense. Uh, and, and somehow there's a connection to Balaam here. Uh, you'll read that next week in numbers 31, but um, that, that Balaam has enticed these people to go do this. Who knows? But um, it, it, there's some connection to the previous story as well. But God yeah. commends the zeal of Phineas. It says, Mo, tells Moses Phineas, what Phineas did was good. Mm-hmm. Great. New Testament. We got some work to do here too. So uh, we see how we come upon the story of the conversion of uh, probably the the most influential person in the church planting part of the New Testament. Uh, and that is of this man named Saul, mm-hmm. who uh, has been persecuting. We were introduced to him last week as part of Stephen's death, that uh, he's persecuting the church. Uh, and Jesus blinds him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Which I think is a fundamental statement yeah. about who we are in Jesus. It's it's not, why are you persecuting my church? Why are you persecuting my followers? He says, it's me. And so um, we are one with Christ as the body of Christ, as the people of Christ. There's a union with with him and, and us, that is just like mind blowing to me that Jesus identifies himself with us at the same time. Um, and, and so he does that to, to, to Saul here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, think about it. Like Saul was at his worst. He was working to kill Christians and that is when God met him. So we cannot believe that anyone is too far from salvation or really even be make judgments about if they're close or not close at all to becoming Christian. We don't know how God is going to work, but it is God's work who accomplishes his sovereign purpose in our lives. Yeah. And we'll see Paul use that in his testimony uh, to talk about God's gracious and patienceness with the guy who is the chief of sinners. So, mm-hmm. um, and then uh, God tells Ananias, this guy that, Hey, uh, you need to welcome this all guy in. And 
I'm sure Ananias is like, um, are you sure? <laughs> Did I hear I you right? Was it really Saul? Um, but uh, he welcomes him in and he even makes a statement. God makes a statement that he, he will carry my name for the Gentiles. So there's mm-hmm. a hint of where we're going in these upcoming stories in that very statement about Saul. Yeah. And Ananias' boldness, I think, in going to Saul and obeying is awesome. And even then he goes to him and says, hey, brother Saul, like he calls him and he affirms his conversion and who he is by faith. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine Saul's emotions to being welcomed to this crowd that has just, that he's been working against. But anyways, uh, and Saul seems to immediately sort of go about proclaiming uh, in the synagogues uh, that he's in Damascus and he starts teaching about this Jesus, uh, as much as he knows, at least at this point, um, we're going to find him sneak off and start learning some more. But um, y- y- you also got to imagine uh, almost everywhere that Saul goes, he, uh, we find out that he's a student of Gamaliel. Uh, if he's a student of Gamaliel, that's like, that's like uh, going to a tech convention and the speaker is a student of Steve Jobs that they had studied under Steve Jobs and is about to give a, a speech. It would have garnered uh, attention uh, from the crowds mm-hmm. around that uh, this guy's in town and he's been studying under Gamaliel. Most people would come out and give him, uh, the synagogues would give him a platform and people would listen to this man. And so um, it's it's significant that he's going to these these towns and, and proving that Jesus was the Christ. Yeah, which is great. Yeah, and I think it's kind of neat how you see Saul has this personality. He's like really zealous and really passionate. And at one point he was passionate about destroying Christians and Christianity. But then when he came to Christ, it's not like his zeal went away. It just was transferred to wanting to show Christ as the Son of God. And that's what he lived for with the same kind of zeal as yep. he persecuted the church with before. Yep. He, he, God redeems that character trait for his purposes, mm-hmm. which is great. But uh, things aren't going so well in Damascus in terms of people wanting uh, Saul to stop. And so uh, they kind of sneak him out of town. Um, yeah. Yeah. And through so, a basket in the yeah, well. That's, that's right. And so uh, Saul ends up in Jerusalem. Now, according to Galatians 1, there's likely a three-year gap somewhere between his conversion story and this story. So just a reminder as you're reading narrative, like sometimes the stories happen back to back, but chronologically – like there's some gaps and Luke doesn't always include those. And so just know some, some length of time has just happened here. Um, Which is good. A good reminder for us too. Like there was, it was, yeah, it was at least three years that he was studying and learning the ways of God and communing with the Lord and being discipled and taught before he went out as an evangelist. And so while his first response, I guess, to salvation is evangelism, there's also a time for learning and growing and being discipled. Yeah. And sometimes we feel like, oh, there's a big gap between, uh, like, I haven't heard from God yet, or something tremendous hasn't happened in my life yet in terms of, like, a miracle or someone coming to Christ or something like that. Like, sometimes we read Acts as if all this stuff's all happening so quickly. And and sometimes it is gaps of time and years and and, and trusting God in, mm-hmm. in sort of the timing of, of certain things. Um and uh, he ends up in Jerusalem. The disciples seem to be initially tentative. Barnabas is sort of the gracious one who invites Saul in, and they sort of will become sort of buddies uh, for a little bit until there's a disagreement between them. And uh, because of the worry, I think about sort of Saul's Saul's uh, um, the the pot he's stirring, they end up shipping him off to back to Tarsus, uh, which is way up in Turkey. We'll include some maps in the show notes. And then we sort of. Cut back to Peter. It was almost like, hey, let's cover a little bit of the Paul story. And then, hey, we're going to cut back to Peter over here, who's 
hightailing it from Jerusalem to the coastline. Um, and he's still doing incredible things. He's healing people. He's raising people from the dead. And, 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 and as sort of the follow-up to those miracles happening, people come to know him, uh, come to know Jesus, not Peter. Um, and, and those miracles are always accompanied by these salvation stories. And um, I think that's always the, the, the thing to hold together. Uh, miracles have that purpose, at least in, in the New Testament, certainly. Um, yeah, and just let's look really quickly at the life of Dorcas or Tabitha. Uh, what made her so beloved? She is described as being full of good works and acts of charity. Um, and the widows were the ones who were advocating for her. So again, we see God's heart is when we care for the vulnerable and the people on the margins. And she was just being faithful to the life in front of her. And the Lord chose to work a miracle through her. But again, I mean, it's a good comparison even to Paul or Saul, who we oftentimes feel like that's how I'm supposed to be, or that's how I'm supposed to be. But then you have these people like Tabitha who are just being faithful where they live and caring for people. Yep. Yeah. I always love when scripture highlights that crowd too. Um, And then we get sort of the chapter 10, which I mean, you can argue whether chapter 10 or chapter 15 is like the huge turning point of this book and sort of the goal of Luke writing Acts. But mm. um, this is like one of the most significant stories in all the book. And um, you have uh, Cornelius, who's in Caesarea, which is like full on Roman town. It's literally named after Caesar. Uh, and um, But it seems like he's uh, this Gentile who uh, believes in Yahweh. So uh, there's different... Um, phrasings around sort of this crowd. So if even in Judaism, they were sort of like, all right, what do we do with Gentiles who believe and, and, and say they worship Yahweh. And so, um, there were crowds that of Gentiles that would convert. So they would go through circumcision, they would follow, uh, the dietary laws and all the other pieces. And so, um, often those were called like, uh, the, the sons or the children of Abraham. And then, uh, there's the crowd that's, um, called the God fears often. And they were, um, Gentiles who, um, weren't, willing to go through conversion in terms of circumcision, in terms of following all the dietary and ethnic practices of being a Jew, but yet we'll read about Yahweh, who will read about the character of Yahweh and 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 worship and and find uh, truth there. And so Cornelius seems like he's one of that those crowds, the God-fearer crowd. He's not circumcised. And so he has a vision, Peter has a vision, um, and and it's so cool to have just walked through Leviticus to me because mm-hmm. I think that the ideas of Leviticus, the idea of clean versus unclean, and not necessarily like sin and not sin uh, or, or sinlessness, but the whole concept of clean and unclean, I think is what's really at hand in this story. Um, and, and clean and unclean had to do with God's presence. Like God dwells in the clean things and in clean places. That's why Israel had to go through so much of the process of cleansing uh, for God to be in that place. So it was already revolutionary if you're an Israelite that that this whole move where God now dwells in a person like our bodies become these these temples like that would have been already far-fetched that Super somehow crazy. Jesus's blood as our high priest cleanses our bodies now as a temple and 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 the book of Hebrews unpacks a lot of that and we'll get there when we deal with Hebrews but like the the cleaning of the conscious now the holy spirit can dwell but that's still within circumcised Jewish people whom God has dwelt with. God has always dwelt amongst the people, and now he's dwelling literally individually with the people. So now the question becomes, okay, can a Gentile be clean without without 
uh, circumcision, without following dietary laws, all those sort of things. And and that's the question at hand that they're going to wrestle with for basically the next five chapters of of what does that really look like? And even Paul's letters have to deal with some of that too. And and we saw Jesus do the work of cleaning over and over and over again. He would take a woman who's hemorrhaging and and by touch basically cleanse her, take her from unclean to clean by her not bleeding anymore, or um, take a leper and and clean that leper from their leprosy. Now, in some ways they're healing, but they're also symbols of, of cleansingness. They don't have to be removed from the worship of God anymore. And so if, God, if Jesus's work, going to heaven, doing what Jesus does in sort of um, – as the high priest, as sort of the, the priestly work that we covered in Leviticus. Jesus does that in a heaven tabernacle as opposed to an mm-hmm. earth tabernacle. That now covers the whole world. Like it's not just the Jewish people in a Jewish place in a Jewish time. It is the the cleansing of all people so that the Holy Spirit can now dwell, not just in the Jewish people, but also to the Gentiles. And so that is at what's at hand. And for Peter to come to that realization, God gives him this vision to sort of set him up and then have this Gentile show up at his door. And he's like, oh, like God, God's work of cleansing is applied to the Gentiles too. And how revolutionary to a Jewish person that really would have been. Um, and and how how revolutionary even the storyline of God up to that point that that would have been God's always had a heart for the Gentiles, but but there's always been that question of okay like but but the Gentiles don't do the things that God wants them to do so so can they be clean can they be in God's presence can 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 they go into the temple because they haven't been able to and they haven't been able to go into the tabernacle and so uh, what does that look like and 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 that's resolved in this story in some ways yeah and I think we're getting little glimpses of a further understanding of what this new covenant of Christ's blood shed is compared to the covenant of circumcision that we see from Abraham and some other things. It's it's like, I wish we could understand how mind-blowing and shocking this transition and this understanding was. Like yeah. a complete paradigm shift. I mean, it's such a paradigm shift that they really have to fight about it. Like, yeah. they have some legit, um, I mean, they have to hash it out with the council in chapter 15 and we'll deal with that. But like, Paul, Paul's constantly haunted by this group that is fighting about this with him of, of going, no, the Gentiles have to follow the law. And, and Paul be like, no, that's not how it's set up. And so, um, it, it, it's, it's a, at least for, for these early Jewish people, a, a, a point of tension that they really have to wrestle through, um, th- that it's almost a surprise to Peter, like that they come to faith and, 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 Peter kind of doesn't preach the most detailed sermon that he has of all of his sermons and just kind of summarizes Christ's work. He doesn't quote a whole lot of Old Testament. And yet these Gentiles, while Peter's speaking, Peter's not even done. It, it, it goes out of his way to say like, while Peter is in the middle of talking about this kind of stuff, they have their Pentecost moment. They're just like a Gentile Pentecost uh, in this moment with the Holy Spirit falling on them. And, and of course they go, okay, well, let's get baptized because we're going to enact the symbol that showcases the cleansing that has happened for the Holy Spirit to come. And so, um, yeah, it's, yeah, so it's this so is cool. Really the first time we see someone not becoming Jewish first and then having the Holy Spirit poured out on to them, but they kind of skip the conversion to Judaism. Yeah. As far as we know, this is the first uncircumcised follower of Jesus and that is filled with the Holy Spirit and it's very clearly filled with the Holy Spirit of, of Cornelius and this crowd and um, we'll, we'll see we'll see that carry on uh, and they'll have to talk about this as, as the early church but uh, we'll get there when we get there and can't you just kind of imagine like Peter watching the whole thing go on and like he's trying to be obedient he's kind of saying what he's supposed to 
but he's kind of confused and concerned about the whole thing and it starts to get out of hand and then he's like all right god i guess you're gonna do what you're gonna do but he's not i I don't know i mean this is speculation but i just get a sense that he's not fully in it yet because he still doesn't quite understand what that's gonna look like yeah and and we'll talk about this when we get to chapter 15 but like they the the jews wouldn't have called the, the gentile like god fears and stuff like that brother uh they would have still considered them in some ways outsiders and so peter's Peter's probably thinking like, okay, like Jesus is Messiah and I'm brothers with all my other Jews that have seen Jesus and trusted in him. But like, what happens? And, and the Holy Spirit dwells in us and I'm cool with that. But what, what happens to these Gentile believers if, if they come, if these God fears suddenly trusted Jesus and, and he's sort of like, I don't know what's going to happen. And then when the Holy Spirit falls, he's like, oh, Okay, this cleansing thing is is taking place for the Gentiles too. And so, gosh, what a what a mind blow for for Peter. Um, and I think Peter wrestles throughout his whole ministry with this very subject too. I mean, we'll see we'll see him struggle with sitting with the Jews and not eating with the Gentiles. We'll see him in Antioch in the very next week where he goes to town, but he only preaches to the Jews. So, um, I think Peter is like. I think this is, but it's not until he probably sits down with the council. He's like, okay, I'm I'm fine with this now. <laughs> well, and then even later we find out he'll like change his behaviors with yeah. Jews and Gentiles. But yeah. All right, Proverbs 30 and Psalm 150. Um, both sort of the tail ends of their book. Um, I mean, Proverbs has one more chapter after this, but this kind of feels in a lot of ways mm-hmm. like the end of Proverbs. Uh, it's sort of almost like a summary. Uh, you, you cover just about all the major themes of Proverbs in this book in like little short two line segments. And so, um, yeah, as you read through it, you're like, Oh, this feels, feels like a summary statement of a, of a book of wisdom. Yeah. Powerful stuff in it though. Little things, every word of God proves true. Or the one that always stands out to me is the give me neither poverty nor riches. Yeah. Uh, That's a prayer that I should pray. Yeah. Uh, and then Psalm 150, uh, which is literally the last book of Psalms. And the Psalms is divided up into five kind of books. And each one of the books kind of ends in this doxology. And this feels like the true doxology of the whole dang thing. Um, and it's pretty straightforward. It's a complicated statement. It's like, praise the Lord. Yeah. It's just a reminder. It takes us back to even to Eden. And we see pictures of the new heavens and the new earth and everything that has breath. Praise Yahweh. All right. So next week. What do you think, Sarah? All right. So I think in the Old Testament, you're going to see a lot of reiteration of feasts and the law, but read it with anticipation. I mean, we've got a ways to go before we see Israel cross into the promised land, but they're getting everything in order and ready to go, which is what we've been really looking forward to since Abram's call in Genesis. Um, And the New Testament, um, I just really love the church of Antioch. So pay attention to them. What are some of the, there's not a ton of verses devoted to them, but what can you learn about them and how they operate as a church? Yeah, They, they will be a hub for most of the rest of the new Testament. And so, um, yeah, might as well start diving in a little bit more of who Antioch is. Uh, so for me, the old Testament, uh, take out your maps. Um, I think as you go to kind of learn where the people groups are, these, these groups that they keep invading. I mean, I think it's helpful to have maps through a lot of stuff. We're going to mm-hmm. deal with that next week in acts two, um, acts, also not Acts chapter two. Uh, and um, so it's just helpful to kind of know where Israel's moving to and who they're conquering and what cities they're stopping at, things like that. And then the new Testament um, notice the use of prayer in the, in the church. Um, I think we get the stories of the individuals and then we suddenly see what the church is doing. And almost every time we see what the church is doing, at least next week, they're just praying. And I think it's such an interesting um, marker that Luke's like, hey, when I mentioned like the group of the church, 
every time I'm just going to mention that they're praying together. And so um, it's, it's definitely a hallmark of the early church that they're a church marked with prayer. Mm-hmm. So thanks y'all. And we'll talk to you next week. Thanks everybody. Thanks everybody.